Hey Alexa, what's the definition of hustle? To be aggressive, especially in business or other financial dealings. You're listening to the H for Hustle podcast, designed to inspire future entrepreneurs to take the leap from working for someone else to pursue their passions and side hustles and turning them into full-fledged businesses. My name is Jerome Fenton. I'm a serial entrepreneur. Every week, I'll be speaking with an entrepreneur that has taken that leap. We'll be talking about the lessons they've learned and how they've turned their passions and side hustles into full-fledged businesses. H for Hustle Podcast, welcome back. back Another back, illustrious back, episode back, up, ahead. up ahead. And on today's episode, we have Travis Ross back, the founder of the Tumalo Group. And man, Travis's story is incredible. So Travis was the founder of a, a billion-dollar company called Hydro Flask. Now, Hydro Flask is those metal... Um, drinking bottles that you know you've seen everywhere. You go to Marshalls, Ross, TJ Maxx—they're all over the place. Um, you probably have one in your house right now. I know I have a few in my house. And we go through Travis's journey of how he started this company. And man, what is the wild, wild, very wild story? So, first thing I want to say: please subscribe wherever you listen to this podcast. At two, make sure you go over iTunes and write a review. Those are really important for us. So please go over there and write a review for us and that's all i have buckle your seatbelts because this is going to be a wild episode of a, a very very interesting story let's lock in right now boom h for hustle podcast welcome back we have another great guest on today um, I have a feeling I'm going to mess up his name, so I want you to introduce yourself, Travis. <laughs> you, you were doing great, Jerome, it's, but it's uh, Travis Rossback. Rossback of the yeah. Tumbleo Group, right? Yep, yep. You know what? My very first best friend's name was Jerome. I just realized that. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. I hope he was a good dude. He was a good dude. Yeah. I he, he, There was him, and then we had another buddy, Victor. So I had a black buddy, a Mexican buddy, and then later Colin came along, and he was a white guy. So it was Jerome, Victor, Travis, and Colin, the four of us. Yeah. Four amigos. Yeah. Yeah. You still hang out with those dudes now? No. Gosh, that was... <laughs> that was 39 years, 40 years oh, ago. Wow. wow. Gosh. Yeah. Time flies. It does fly. Um, so, Travis, if I was to meet you out at a dinner party, what would you say you do for a living? I'd say I just do the Travis thing uh, for the most part. That kind of it kind of is the only thing I've ever really done well is just kind of doing the Travis thing. Um, sometimes I do this. Sometimes I do that. Sometimes I do the other. Um, but I, I always just kind of end up doing the Travis thing for the most part. Uh, I was a pilot, boat captain, dive instructor, um, entrepreneur, probably I'd say probably an entrepreneur, uh, but I don't know how to spell okay. that. So I always just write it out as like <laughs> self-employed. <laughs> I'd say I'm probably self-employed. That's probably the easiest way to put it. So, okay, got it. I'm a hustler, uh, honestly. Get, <laughs> just hustle. We're gonna get we're, we're gonna get into what the Travis thing is in a bit. Um, the hustler. So, Travis, if I was to meet you back in high school, would I have met like a self-employed entrepreneurial kid, or who would I have met? Um, I think so. Yeah, I mean, I was I was constantly trying to figure out a way to buy the new Jordans, you know, and and okay. constantly looking for you know, beer money and just how to go skip school and go to the beach and have enough money to buy gas to go to the beach and get food. And, um, I just, I had a lot of fun being outside of the high school, but I, I just could not stand being in the high school. Yeah. Got it. I, I'm, I'm pretty much the same way. Um, I, I didn't love the school experience at all. I think it's just too regimented. Mm -hmm. uh, my brain just doesn't work in that specific order yeah. of things. So I definitely understand. So what were some of those hustles that you were doing in high school um, that you can think back to? Um, well, <laughs> I guess it's only because the statute of limitations is up. Um, but, I, you know, <laughs> you know, we'd buy dime bags 
from the Mexicans and then um, go sell them for 20 bucks to the rich white kids up on the hill. You know, like uh, things like uh, that. <laughs> hey, man, listen, I always love I always love a good entrepreneur story and start off with a little drug dealing. So I love, I love, <laughs> I love that <laughs> because it, it, it's the truest form of entrepreneurship, right? Buy low, sell high, that's what get it your was. margin between, rinse and do it again. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. You know, and, and before that, um, I remember being in elementary school and at the fun run which I always thought was an oxymoron, like running for me was not fun, but I'd go out and I would collect, I, I would basically make two sheets, one that I turn into the school and one that I would show the people up on the hill. Cause I'd always go to the real rich neighborhoods up on the hill. Um, mm-hmm. And I'd show them that I ran, you know, 40 laps and they'd pay me a dollar a lap. And then I'd go down and in reality, I only ran like three and so I'd keep the $37 split and, you know, I was constantly trying to, you know, I was doing stuff like that, but kind of out of just necessity too. Like I had a single, yeah. my mom was single with raising four kids on government cheese and, and welfare. So like if I was going to get mine, I had to go get it. There was not enough left at the end of the day at the house, you know, 50 there cents. No there was no extras. No 50 cent candy bars. I'd sell for a dollar 50 or $2 and keep the split, you know, Got like it. just kind of like Got little, it. little things like that. Got it. So that time you, that was just kind of getting your hustle mind kind of going. When do you take the next step and get into a legitimate business at that point? When do you, when do you say, you know what? I, I know what it is to buy low, sell high. Do you, when do you go off and start your own business? Um, well, so I think I, I studied business. I, I inherited a fairly large business bookshelf from my neighbor who had died. And so I really started to learn business about the age of 12. And then I met my dad when I was 14. He was down in St. Croix, the U.S. Virgin Islands. And he was running, he, he owned dive shops. And so I would show up at the beginning of the summer and he would bolt. He'd give me the cash bag, the keys and the shotgun. And he'd be like, here you go, man. Like I'll see you um, come August. And he'd leave for two, three months and I'd run the shop. So that those were kind of my first um, real business, you know, activities like, you know, legit legal was running the dive shops in St. Croix, which um, taught me a lot. Like, I mean, it was, it was, it was really a different place. I was less than 5% um, other, I was the minority and I was 14, you know? And so 15, 16, 17, 18, running the dive shop, 19, 20, running the dive shop. Um, so that's kind of when I I learned and, and started doing real business. And then when I got done flying charter jets, probably mm, 26 or so, I let's go back a second so you're running a dive shop. When do you become a pilot? Um, well, so I was a dive instructor and then became a boat captain and kind of just traveled all over the Caribbean, all over the world, ended up living in Australia and a few other places being a boat captain. And um, one day it just hit me like, man, you're a pilot. And I really wanted to fly for Seaborne Airlines, the seaplanes that fly St. Croix, St. Thomas and Puerto Rico. So, uh, yeah, April 2001, I became a pilot or I started flight training, I should say. September 11 happened. Um, but then about 2002, I got on, um, I got, I got all my licenses. I got all my certificates and got rated as an airline transport pilot, commercial pilot and started flying for Seaborne Airlines, um, Sure enough, you know, just like that. And then stopped doing that, moved up to Florida and started flying Lear, uh, Falcons, Hawkers, yeah, Citations, things like that. And then about 2005, 2006, moved back to uh, Bend, Oregon and started a fence company. Got it. Um, So, I mean... Being a pilot's really, really a fun job, right? You get to travel. Why, what made you say, you know, I had enough of that? It, well, I, I, I love to travel. I mean, I just, I am constantly wandering and traveling all over the place. And I kind of, I mean, the jump seat privileges were awesome, but flying for a, um, an airline 
there was a lot of red tape and there was a lot of paperwork and there was a lot of just a lot of just bullshit that I just didn't really like. I don't like following those rules. You know, I, I really enjoyed flying around the Caribbean doing charters. I had a really, really good friend that uh, Ken Webster was his name. And uh, he owned his own jet. We used to fly around. I used to do charters with him before he died. Um, he augured in on uh, one of the flights that I wasn't able to make because I was flying for the airlines. Um. I, I flew all the planes I wanted to fly. Like I had a list, I had flashcards, like these are the jets and this is a Falcon or Falcon. This is a Hawker. This is a citation. And like, so I could tell them apart and I knew which ones I wanted to fly. But as soon as I flew them, I was like, we had a saying, you know, like same shit, different Island. And it was yeah. kind of like, okay, now I'm in a hotel for five days, you know? And it's like, what do I do in a hotel in the middle of nowhere for five days? I'd go to the museums, I'd go to the art shows, I'd go to the clubs, I'd go whatever, do whatever. But you go back there five, six times every month and it kind of gets boring, you know? And, yeah. um, and the pay wasn't all that great. I mean, I was sitting next to a guy who had been flying jet charters for 10 years, longer than I had been. And he was only making 10 grand more than me. I'm like, so in 10 years, I'm going to be making 10 grand more. I'll never pay off all my debt. Like this just doesn't pencil yeah. out. And I'm living on, you know, I was living in the restaurants and living in, in hotel rooms. Yeah. So that there's a cost that comes with that as well too. Yeah. And it's really, I mean, once you learn the systems and how to do it, like takeoff and landing is exciting. I mean, like if you're going to die, it's going to be during takeoff or landing. But when you're cruising, like you're just trying not to fall asleep up there. Really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you go back to Bend, Oregon, and what makes you say, all right, I'm going to start a fencing company, you said? Yeah, man, just the craziest thing. Like, we just got back. We were renting a house, and one night, like, I think it was our, our second night back, I had a girlfriend who uh, were sitting there drinking a bottle of wine, had no idea what we were going to do, and, like, some dude just comes in our backyard, and I was like, hey, man, what are you doing in my backyard? You know, like, what's up? And he was putting in a uh, fence. He was from the fence company and um, he was using metal posts and clear cedar. There was no knots in the wood. It, it was beautiful. I mean, it looked really cool. And I asked him like, are you doing all of these subdivisions? Cause bend was growing just like crazy. This is about 2005, 2006. And uh, he's like, nah, man, we don't do the, we don't do the subdivisions. And I thought, Oh, why the hell not? You know? And he said, well, the guy just likes to do one off, you know, like one house at a time. I said, well, you know, like how hard could it be? I might as well go do that. And so we started, like we just went up to Portland and went to a fence supply store and walked in and was just like, sell us a fence company. And you know, like, what do we need? So we bought all the tools and came back and I started poaching, um, some of the best fence builders from some of the other fence companies. And, um, like we were just hiring like straight up homeless people to just help put up fences. And we watched VHS cassette tapes of how to build a fence and started doing fences. Um, but like we were legit, like, you know, I had a collared shirt and, you know, we had a proper <laughs> logo and like we had a uniform and, you know, like we cleaned up after ourselves and we did a nice job and pretty soon we started doing a lot of the subdivisions and pretty right. soon we started making a lot of money and we had about 25 crew at, at the height. And then I got cold and it was February and I hadn't been, you know, taking time off. And, um, so sold and, and took off to Oahu. So how long did you run that business for? The fence company about two years. Two years. Yeah. Got it. So in that two years you were steadily building. Um, how did you help get the sales and everything going? Were you just, your name was the popular, your name was just getting more popular or were you guys out there selling and promoting? Well, um, we were, so we were called bend fencing, which really helped. I mean, people just had, as I mean, like the vast majority of people assumed that we'd just been around for a hundred years. I mean, they, they just figured they get into the phone book. We took out a full, which was really, really scary. We took out a full page ad and it was like, 
it was like 14 grand for the year. And I just remember thinking like, there's no way we'll ever recoup this. I mean, there's zero ROI on that, but there was, I mean, like it, it worked and, um, phone book. Then we also started doing door hangers. And, uh, like if you had a, uh, like an ugly fence or no fence at all, you'd get a door hanger. And we would just, we just literally mob through neighborhoods, hanging door hangers. And that worked. Wow. Uh, yeah. With my cleaning company, I, we used to hand out flyers and that it has a very low return, like a one or 2% return, but it does work. And once you get that customer, they start talking. Yeah. grows from there. Exactly. So it's very low. It's low tech, but it works. You know? Yep. Yep. Every door direct marketing is another, you know, way to like just mailing out like big flyers. And back then people were a little bit more receptive to paper and, you know, receiving stuff in the mail and be there a little bit, you know, we didn't have the online presence that we do today. So, yeah. So then things started getting cold. You were pretty much burnt out on this company, right? Like at one point, I guess you ran into a wall. So yeah. what you sold, you sold to what a neighboring competitor or. Um, well, uh, so we ended up selling to a guy who, um, real nice guy. He was maybe, you know, I think we were, I was probably about 30 or so at the time. And he was probably about 25, 26. So kind of a younger kid who, uh, he just always wanted to own a business. And he just was like, I, I can't remember. I think we advertised probably on like Craigslist or something. And he found us and, um, it, it worked. Like we liked him and he liked us and he liked what we're doing. And, and then, uh, he bought. Yeah. Got it. So then you go to uh, Hawaii, or right? Yeah, off to Oahu. What prompted that? You were just trying to get out of Oregon, get somewhere warm? Yep, exactly. I was cold, and I, I called my partner. I was like, man, I got to go, uh, either Mexico or Hawaii. And I hadn't been to either. And she called back later, and she's like, all right, get your bags. You're going off to Oahu. I show up in Oahu, <laughs> and they open up the doors, and I could feel that aloha. And I was like, yeah, I live here. I called her, and I said, look, like – I live here now. You can either keep the company or sell it, but either way, I live here. <laughs> and she, she's like, "Are you drunk? Who are those people? Are you at the bar?" I'm like, "No, I'm still on the airplane. I, I haven't even got off the plane yet, but I know that I live here." And she's like, uh, "Like you just, you just felt, yeah, that. man, that aloha was real. Like I felt it. Like I got to be here." And I miss yeah. the Caribbean. I miss the Virgin Islands. Um, I mean, it was an extremely rough winter and I was tired of digging holes in the ice and the rocks and, um, I needed to be warm. So I spent my vacation there, came back home and about two weeks later it was sold. I mean, we were doing good, good, good numbers. I mean, we had it, we had it going on. Like we had an awesome operation. We had really good crews and we were legit. So we sold and moved to Oahu. Got it. So once you're in Hawaii, what, what do you think of an entrepreneurial journey uh, step there? Or do you just say, you know what, let me just relax, enjoy the sun or did something else pop in your mind? We just, we just tried to chill for a while. And then, you know, we started running out of money. It's expensive living in Hawaii. I mean, it's really yeah, I, expensive. I've, I've heard, I've never been, but I've heard that it's everything, even like milk is like five dollars six dollars you know it's like ridiculous because they're getting everything imported yep it's it's off the charts it's nuts um but you know you kind of get used to it and it, you know it kind of become i mean like it's it's the good and the bad like yeah it's bad that it's expensive but you still get to live in hawaii so it, you know you kind of learn to deal deal with it and do with less but um you know, I don't actually know how it came, but it just kind of hit that I wanted to, I kind of had a fascination with the printing world and how that worked. And there was a tremendous amount of uh, competition in the sign and banner space. Like okay. there were banners all over the island. It felt like that said sign company, you know, make your banners with us. Like everybody and their cousin had a sign company. And yeah. I think just seeing that enough, eventually I was like, fuck it. Let's just take a shot at that, you know? And, and they had plotters where they would cut the vinyl and then they'd take it off and they'd put it on the banner and there's your, you know, two or three colored banner. And I learned that there were these 
uh, digital printers, like 64, 65 inch printers. And so we could print digital banners and, and hopefully blow the competition away. And that's, so that's what we ultimately did. So you bought those in Hawaii. So you were like, let's, let's build this business in Hawaii. Although there was a ton of competition, your distinguishing factor was that it was digital. You didn't have to wait on a platter to be cut and to be stuck on. Yeah. It was all digital. Yeah. Well, and a lot of people like, so I kind of started doing some research on like, who are, who are these, you know, quote unquote sign companies. And there were actually only like maybe three or four that had a brick and mortar location. The rest were working out of their garage or out of their house. And and I mean, I knew right away, like, there's no way we're going to be having people come to our house to do signs. Like we, we got to run this like a real business. So we rented a, like just stupid expensive building right downtown, um, right there on the main drag, right around the corner from the, um, Blaisdell Coliseum, um, you know, and, um, it was great because we, uh, MMA just started coming out. And so we were meeting up with a lot of the MMA fighters and doing printing for them, BJ Penn, um, Dehui, um, and, and we had some pretty big names pretty quick and those really helped propel us forward and, and kind of give us our bread and butter. Like we knew that every time there was an MMA fight, we would be doing shirts and banners and posters and things like that. Got it. So I can hear my audience asking right now, are you taking the finances? So the funding for this came from the finances of the sale of the other business? Yep. 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 Got it. So yeah. once you made that, so, and then you started making a name for yourself in Hawaii with the MMA community. Do you expand outside of that MMA community? Yeah. I mean, we were doing, um, we were working with a lot of like t-shirt companies and, and, and clothing manufacturers, or, or like clothes, not manufacturers, but like clothing brands. Like we started working with a, a lot of, like a lot of people also have like surfwear or, you know, like okay. they would call it whatever they would call it. But, um, a lot of people needed a lot of t-shirts printed, like for the tourists and things like that. So we would print for okay, them. And then we also kind of became like a, like an ad marketing agency. Like we were just working with so many people, and so we started doing graphic design, logo design. Um, we were print, you know, like we would be in charge of printing all of the collateral and all the merchandising and the merch and the swag and the swag and, and, and everything. Got it. Okay. So how long do you run that business for in Hawaii? We had that for about, I think about three years or so. And then, um, okay. then one day it just like, it like just struck. It was like, Oh man, something just happened and the economy had crashed. And so, uh, that was about Oh eight. Yeah. About Oh eight, Oh nine, the economy crashed. And, um, it was just like, we got to do something else. So we just had fire sales and we would just sell, we just sold off all of our assets, basically an asset sale, sold the printers, the plotters, the computers. We sold everything, closed down the big, stupid, expensive brick and mortar building and, um, we had that money and we were living on the North shore and, um, which was, <laughs> which was really expensive. And, um, uh, we got down to the point where it's like, man, we got nothing to do. And I had been, um, uh, at the fence, at the sign company, I was thirsty one day. And so I went into a, uh, sporting goods store to go get a, a plastic water bottle, a non single use mm-hmm. plastic wa- Nalgene water bottle they're called. And, they didn't have any. And I was like, well, what's up? Like what, what happened? And the guy said, well, there's this stuff it's called BPA. We're not really sure what it is, but as a precautionary measure, we pulled all of the bottles and there was like maybe two or three left. And I was like, well, who's going to replace all these bottles on this shelf? And he's like, nobody, there's, there are no other brands. And it just, it came in and it came out my mouth that I will, I will do that. And so instantly in that moment, you said, I'll do that with no way of figuring out exactly knowing how to do that. I kind of like looked around. I was like, who said that? You know, and, and he laughed at me. And, but from the time it came out of my mouth and the time that he laughed at me, I saw the future. I saw myself, you know, 10 years down the line on stage in a jacket 
talking to people about this successful water bottle company. And it was like, it just is. I'm like, that's just what I'm doing. Like, that's what's going to happen. And I had no idea how or what, or, you know, I, I had no idea, but I knew that there was a lot of plastic washing up on our beach on the North shore. I was sick mm-hmm. of seeing plastic single use water bottles every single day, you know, on our front beach. And, uh, I've been scuba diving all around the world and saw plastic everywhere I went. I was like, yeah, if we can, if we can take a shot at the single use plastic water bottle industry, <laughs> here we come. And, and so, so started Hydroflask, the water bottle company. So, so Hydroflask is a very, very well-known big company. I've actually, my wife has a bunch of them. She buys them from like TJ Maxx and Marshalls at this point. Uh, and also, we have some stuff for the girl, for my daughters, um, that you put like food in. Yeah, um, food flask. So now you start this company. How do you say, I'm going to go metal? What makes you even, you see you want to attack this problem and get rid of plastic, but what? how do you figure out what how, what material to go to? Well, I knew I didn't, like, Nalgene was making plastic bottles and they still do. They're now BPA free. And I have nothing against Nalgene. I think they're a fine brand. I've never actually, it's interesting because I know, I know a lot about a lot of the water bottle companies, but I don't know a lot about Nalgene, which is kind of interesting. I haven't really put that together before. Um, but I knew I didn't want to do plastic because they could get pulled from the shelves at any time. And um, I always like to hire people who are younger than me so that I know kind of what's hip and cool and trending. And so I went back to the sign company and I asked one of the girls who was working there, I was like, Hey, like I need a water bottle. What do I do? And she said, well, there's this aluminum bottle called SIG and it's the best water bottle on the planet. I was like, okay, cool. I went and bought a SIG and I couldn't instantly, I I didn't like it. Like I couldn't put the ice cubes in it. I'd take it out surfing come back and it'd be too hot to drink out of. I couldn't put in the freezer. It's sweat. So if it was cold water, it would get everything all wet. And then to top it off, I dropped it like from like two feet and it dented and it looked stupid after it dented. And then about a week later, I'm drinking out of it, realizing that the gold wrapper on the inside had flaked off. And so I called the, yeah, I don't know what I'm drinking at this point, you know? Yeah. You're drinking like flakes and some other stuff. Yeah. And when I was in Australia, I read this article about people's parrots or not parrots, um, like parakeets or larakeets or um, their birds were dying in the kitchens because of the, the um, coating on their cookware, like their pots and pans had some like Teflon thing, or I'm not sure what it was, but the birds were dying in the people's kitchen. And so I instantly had this thought of like, Oh geez, I just drank some of this stuff. Like what if this is the same shit that's killing the birds? So I called SIG and they're like, we don't have to tell you what, what that is. I'm like, well, I'm a customer and I, you know, like, I don't know what happened to the gold stuff. I might've drank some of it. Like, is it bad? And they're like, no, we're not telling you. They were really rude. And they kind of like basically hung up on me. And at that point I was like, oh, okay, no, watch like, this. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's on like Donkey Kong now, man. Like that's not how you treat people. <laughs> I paid $20 for that water bottle. Screw you. I'm coming for you. And, um, and so then when like, you know, fast forward a bit, like I found my brother started working at REI here in Ben, they just opened and he's like, Hey, there's this single wall bottle. You'll love it. It's awesome. Metal. Yeah. Cool. Cause I know I'm not doing aluminum, not doing plastic. I'll do metal. So I get the bottle, take a sip and it just dribbles all over my chin and all down my shirt. I was like, Oh, okay. I got to learn how to drink again, you know? And I try it again and it does the same thing and I would take it to the beach and I'd come back and it'd be too hot to drink. It kind of like defeated the purpose of having water. If I can't drink it, then, you know, yeah. And so the only good news was I could put ice cubes in it, but then it would sweat and everything would get wet. And then I drank and it dribble all over me again. 
And so it's like, okay, you know, when, and then we, when we really were like out of money, it was like, we got to do something. Let's do, let's do this water bottle idea. Got it. So where do you get the funding now? Because metal is not a cheap material to make, you know, double walled um, cups out of, or, or containers out of. So how do you find the money and the manufacturer to make this? Well, um, the first thing that we did was we had a, like an estate sale. And we sold our car, we sold our furniture, we sold our cutlery, we sold our clothes, we sold everything we had. And um, I, I guess that would maybe be the second thing. The first thing we did was I, I took off to Shanghai and I knew like stuff is made in China. I don't really know what that means, but I know I got to go to China in order to um, go get stuff made. We had a client who would kind of like take these field trips to the Canton fair and the Canton fair was, and I think they've, they've changed the name, but, um, since then, but it's basically where all the factories come together to just like have a big convention and show what they make, what they manufacture. Yeah. Okay. And so you could go for like this week and you could find metal manufacturers. You could go for this week and find electronics. And this week is, you know, like wood. And so I asked the guys like, Hey man, can I come with you? Cause I want to go make these double wall vacuum insulated bottles. And he's like, no, you can't come with me. There's no such thing. And you know, like you don't want to waste your time and there's no reason for you to come. I was like, oh, okay, well, um, I guess I'll go on my own then. I'll, I'll go look. So I went out to Shanghai and I found a, a bottle factory that said that they would make metal water bottles. And I showed up and they were like, no, we just do plastic. I was like, well, you, but you told me that, nope, we do plastic. I'm like, oh, okay. Um, and just as I was leaving, this guy came up and he's like, hey, man, I got a cousin. You should go see him. He can help you out. And so I went and met his cousin and, uh, we spent, you know, about a week, um, just kind of like looking around at all these different factories. And eventually we found somebody who would take a shot at it and he made us a couple samples and they worked and everybody loved them. And then we sold everything we had to buy the first minimum order quantity. Got it. So the minimum order, how much did you spend on that? Do you remember? Uh, I think it was about, well, it was supposed to be like about 15, 20 grand. And, um, so we're like, yeah, okay. You know, like we sold the car, we sold everything we had. We moved back to bend. We moved into my mom's spare bedroom. We each had one suitcase, my, my girlfriend and I, and, uh, after, you know, it took about a month. Uh, it took more than that. It took about two and a half, three months to build the molds and to make the first round. And in that, that time we ran, we were running out of money. So I called up, I was like, Hey, can we just do 1500? And they said, well, yeah, but you know, we're going to have to scrap the other 1500 because you're not ever going to order anymore. It's like, well, why not? He's like, cause this is a dumb idea. <laughs> and I was like, really? man, like, like just make the bottles and let me sell them. Like you do your thing and I'll do my thing. And we'll just, you know, we'll buy these 1500. We'll just see how it goes. And he's like, yeah, but again, like this is dumb. Nobody's going to buy double wall vacuum insulated bottles. There's no market. I'm like, all right, well, we'll see. Got the 1500. Sure enough, they, they sold. And so we so bought the let's second. Let's go 15. back to the sale right there. How do you go about selling them? Are you, are you, is your brother still at REI? Did you sell there? Did you, are you selling them hand to hand? How did you make those sales happen? Well, um, so here in Oregon, the Portland Saturday market, uh, is up by the Burnside under the Burnside bridge. And so that's where we started. We would drive about three hours every weekend up to Portland and we'd set up a little booth. Um, we started out by the railroad tracks, uh, cause they wouldn't even let us into the actual proper market. Because no, they they too thought that was stupid. Nobody's going to buy a double wall vacuum insulated water bottle, and so we started out just you know hustling, just slinging water bottles to people for cash, and they would get them. They'd get them home. They'd put their ice cubes in it and stay cold. They'd put their coffee in it and stay hot. It worked. It did what it said it was going to do, and so that was a major benefit that it. We were legit. We were honest in what we would say and what we would do and what the, you know, what the bottles would do. But then the people were also getting hydrated. 
And so our customers start feeling better about themselves the more they're taking on water and they're, they're drinking less pop, less beer, less juice, less of everything else and more water. They're feeling better about themselves. What's changed? Oh, now we got this water bottle. We keep the water bottle with us everywhere we go. Let's go buy more water bottles. So they come back and buy another round of bottles for their spouse or for their kids or for their colleagues or gifts or whatever. So that's kind of how it originally started. Got it. And then, so then how do you scale at that point, right? So do you order the next, after you sell it to 1500, do you order the next 1500 that you didn't get to pick up before? Yep. Exactly right. Drum. Yep. So the, um, so the, um, in between the Saturday market every weekend, we'd come back to bend and go to the, it was like munching music or munching movies. It was like, you know, in the Drake park, uh, like a, you know, vendors would set up their booths and sell cotton candy and slides and music or whatever. And so we'd put up these, uh, a 10 by 10 booth there and the local newspaper, the Ben Bulletin came along and did an article on us. And the following week after the article came out, this guy came up and he's like, Hey man, I'm a, I'm a sales rep. I want to rep your brand. I sell to sporting goods stores. And I didn't even know what that meant. I was like, I, not, you know, I don't know. Like, I know what, I kind of know what sales reps are from like living in the, in, in the dive shop days, but you do the same thing with water bottles. He's like, well, no, there's no such thing as water bottles, but um, like this, this market wasn't really a, a thing really. But he was like, I sell other products like socks and skis and, you know, stuff like that to uh, sporting goods stores. I was like, all right, yeah, we're, you know, like here's some bottles and, he called back like a week later and he's like, whatever the rest of your inventory is, like, I need it. Like I've already sold it. And so we bought the second round of 1500 and, um, it showed up about a month later and it was sold by the time it got here. And hit, you know, he started signing up another rep and another rep and another rep. And we opened up another store and another store and we were making enough money where we could start going to trade shows. We went to the outdoor retail show. But how are you? Because you're literally creating a market, right? Like, and I know people hearing this, like you hear of Swell and you go to, um, there's so many other hydrogen bottles like this, but you're literally creating a market that didn't exist. Mm-hmm. How are you funding this? Like, how are you able to continue? Are you just making enough to buy more and buy more and buy more? Yeah, it was a little bit of both. Like we were bootstrapping all of it. I mean, we were, we were still very broke ourselves. I mean, we were drinking, you know, eating macaroni and cheese and, and, and not a lot of food. Like we had our garbage cans repossessed. Every dollar we had was going back just to buy more bottles and the biggest problem that we had is that it would take about, on average, 120 to 150, so about 130 days from the time that we paid for the bottle to the time that we would actually receive money from the bottles. Because a lot of the retail stores want net 30, net 60, net 90. The bigger they are, the bigger yeah. they can ask for. So you get a big retailer that's like, yeah, we do net 90, take it or leave it. Well, you kind of got to take it, you know, you kind of got to give them your product. And if it it doesn't sell, well, then they give it right back to you and give you pennies and they go, there you go, go on your way. Um, We had kind of the opposite where we'd give it to them, it'd sell, they would need more. We'd have to give them more. We'd have to give them more and more and more. And every time we were having to buy them and yet we hadn't received any payment from them. So they'd take 72 one week and then the next week they call and take 140. Then the next week they take 300 and we still hadn't been paid from the first order from them. But we, so it was very dangerous and it was very, um, it was very nerve wracking. We maxed out. Yeah. I can see how cash intensive that is. And are you still selling at the, market as well um, still slinging them hand to hand as well or no a little bit like I, that was always my most fun like i always enjoy going to the markets and the fairs um i mean we did the deschutes county fair and like that's where we would get feedback like people would tell us i don't like this i love that i could ask questions what do you think of this what do you think of that and it was cash and so with that cash we could go and buy food 
Um, if they ran it through the credit card, well, the credit card would just go right back to more inventory. If we sold it for cash, then we could actually pay our bills and, and, and eat. Um, Got it. So, yeah. Well, you're at this place where things are a little tricky, right? Financially cash, you need a cash infusion. You're using kind of the cash to live and also buy inventory. How do you get beyond that level? Because, you know, a lot of the people who are listening to this, they're, they're, their business is at that place right now. They they kind of need a cash infusion or they need to get to that next step. How did you guys get to that next step? Well, we, I mean, credit cards, uh, friends and family, uh, and then friends and family, and then credit cards, and then friends and family, and then credit cards, and then loans and debt. And, uh, you know, <laughs> We had, like I said, we had a car repossessed. We had a, uh, our garbage cans were repoed. Um, so it was tough. And then we had people who became kind of like super fans, you know, people kind of became attracted to the brand and they felt better and they loved the product and they loved what we were doing. And they were, they were friends of the family, kind of not like actual, like, not like the Rossback family, but like the hydro flask family kind of started yeah. to grow and people are like, hey, man, if ever you need anything, let me know. And I'd kind of take a mental note. And then when it get real down, you know, hey, you got 250 grand for me. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we need 40,000 more bottles. And so we kind of started to find some investors that way. And then we hit a real low critical point where my partner, every time it get difficult, she'd just bail. She'd take off to Hawaii. She'd just leave and and just quit and throw in the towel and she'd go. And um I had one week where we had 40,000 rusted non-insulated bottles and she left the uh we had a bunch of day laborers who were checking the bottles to see if they were rusted or insulated. We had one employee, she fired them all, gave them pennies on the dollar. She stole the rest of our cash. And she left and I just got back from China. I was real sick. I'd spent time in the hospital, whole nine yards. And it was like, I don't know that I can keep doing this. You know, like I went through a lot of that kind of self doubt. Um, but then money would walk in and, you know, kind of one of the best uh, money walking in the door stories was it was a Wednesday and I was just spent. I was done. Like we have no more money. We have a really good brand at this point. We've got really good employees. We're really doing some good stuff, but I can't afford to pay rent or the lease. I can't afford to pay the employees. I can't afford any of this anymore. Our, and, and we couldn't do factoring because the factoring takes 90 days if you're lucky. And if you have good credit and you jump through all their hoops and all their, you know, all their story, which, you know, proved to not work for us there, you know, SBA loans just weren't going to hack it. We needed money right now. And, um, this guy walked in and he was like, Hey, I'm looking for a job. And the, the girl up front's like, you gotta go talk to Travis. And I told him, no, I said, I'm sorry. You know, we're just not hiring right now. And he was very persistent. He said, you know, I just love the brand. I, I really want to work here. It's like, no, I'm not hiring back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Finally, he said, is it me or what's the deal? Why will you not hire me? Like what, what is it about me that you're not going to hire? And I said, well, look, to tell you the truth, Friday is the last day. I'm going to let everybody go. We're closing the doors on Friday. We don't have enough money to keep going. He's like, well, what do you need? I said, uh, how about a million dollars? He goes, okay. So if I got you a million dollars by Friday, could I start on Monday? And this is like Wednesday at like four o'clock, four thirty. And I was like, I was like, yeah, man, why don't you, let, let's just do that. You know, I was like, you know, like call security. Let's get this guy out of here. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, okay. You know, see you later. You go get me a million dollars and I'll see you Monday morning. How's that buddy? So he leaves. I draft up this, you know, letter, you know, lots of tears, lots of just, you know, it was, it was awful. I wasn't sleeping. I wasn't eating. I was so stressed. I didn't want to let my friends, you know, my employees, our friends go. And I, I felt like I was letting the customers down. I mean, it was, it was awful. It was awful, awful, awful. And, um, Friday morning, like, Hey, Trav, some guys up the front desk for you. I'm like, tell them we're not hiring. I don't want to talk to anybody. Like, I'd been crying. You know, I didn't want to see anybody. She's like, 
he says he's got an appointment only with you. He doesn't want to see anybody else but you. I'm like, all right, you know, dude, like, I didn't know if he was like a debt collector. I didn't know who he was. And I go forward and he's like, I heard you need a million dollars. It's like, yeah. <laughs> so he goes, tell me what you got. And I told him and he's like, here you go. And he wrote me a check and gave me a million dollars right there. And I went down to the bank, put in the bank and it cleared. I got a million dollars in my account. Okay. So how did that guy, how did that guy get you a million dollars? How did that happen? Who was he? Yeah. Know somebody well, so out? the dude who showed up on Wednesday, his wife was a realtor and she sold the house to a guy who a high net worth individual who had just moved to the area was looking to buy a business needed a reason to be in bend. And he, he told me, he's like, I, as I was flying in here, he, he flew into Redmond uh, airport and he's like, there was a woman sitting next to me on the plane. I wasn't even sure what a water bottle company was. I wasn't really sure what I was looking at, but I told my buddy that I'd come out and look at it just for the heck of it. And there was a lady on the plane sitting next to him who would not stop talking about hydro flask. And the whole flight, he said for three hours, this woman told me about hydro flask. And he said, she was your biggest fan and she sold me on it. And so I want to, I want to buy in. And, and so he did. Uh, uh, that was so wild. <laughs> Isn't that wild? So, uh, what, how much percentage do you give him of your company for this? Like, um, well, that first, that first million was, uh, was interest only. Really? Yeah. Yeah. It started out as an interest only. That's, you know, like, uh, you know, I, I, I only moved like, I, I mean, I didn't really like sell drugs. I just sold dime bags to the, to the rich kids, but like, Drug dealers will give you the first rock for free. I hear, you know, like, you know, here's a little piece of crack. Just try that. It's free. Oh, okay, cool. Thanks. And the next thing you know, you got, you know, you're, you're mortgaging your house and selling everything to buy more. And that's kind of how it was, you know, <laughs> got it, got it, got it. So the first million was to get you a taste. Yeah. And then you had to start giving up percentages to get the rest. Yeah. Because sure enough, that million worked. We were able to buy, you know, more water bottles and more water bottles came in and they sold and we already had them sold already. We just needed to get the inventory. We got our inventories up. We had marketing dollars. We had all of a sudden we could hire legitimate employees and open up a legitimate, you know, facility. And, uh, we were legit all of a sudden. And then we needed another million. Okay, well, let's renegotiate the terms. Okay, well, now we need another million and another million and another million. We started doing 80,000 bottles a month. We had to pay $5.50 for them from the factory. I mean, that's what they cost then. That's what they cost now. It hasn't really changed. And so 80,000 a month bottles at five fifty. And we weren't getting paid for 120 days after that. So it was really capital intense. Operating cash, yeah. Big time. Yeah, that's crazy. All right, so now Hydro Flask is – so how long did that go on where you keep trying to get a million send-out bottles, million – how long did that have to go on for? Um, It went on for another couple years like that where, um, you know, where we were able to – like – we were able to bootstrap along the way fairly well, but we were growing about 600% a quarter. And that was expensive because we needed better employees. We needed more computers. We needed more server space. We needed more at, you know, and then the computer, then the social media started to take off. So we needed new websites and we needed new ad spend and all these things that were just kind of opening up. It was kind of a new market to go online to sell things. We were, we were pretty much strictly brick and mortar, um, and a few, you know, like I always just love going out to go to the fair and sell bottles and stuff like, like that's like, I'm a hawker. I like to hawk, you know? Yeah. Um, like so how hustler. do you, how at, you're scaling and scaling and scaling. At what point do you like have to step out of that business and get somebody else in there? Or at what point do you say, all right, I had enough or how do you get it to get to that next level? Because 
you created a space, but other companies started to come in. You have Swell, you have other other companies that are replicating what you're doing. How'd you deal with all of that and still scale? Well, um, the first the first companies that kind of like came in, they were just like a one to one knockoff. And so we were able to send the cease and desist letters and kind of keep them out. Um, But then other kind of name brands started to do their own designs and they started to do their own thing. But we had already sort of established the marketplace. I mean, we already had a lot of the shelf space and a lot of the big retail stores. I mean, we had Whole Foods, we had REI, we had the, you know, the government was was buying it. We were selling at the the PXs all over the world, really. And so we were already sort of established on the shelves across the country. And then, so when the competition came in, um, they weren't, at, at that time, they weren't really that different enough to not buy Hydro Flask. Like we just, we provided everything that they would need. It wasn't until later that like Yeti came out with their bottles. Swell, Sarah, she came out with her bottles. She's there in your neck of the woods. She does. Yeah, um, in New York. Yeah. And she does a lot of the printing there in Jersey and New York too, That which is yeah. which I always yeah, yeah. found been, really I've cool. To, I've been to their design studio in, on oh, 18th cool. Street. I, oh, I know cool. she's still there, but I remember going there with pretty, pretty happening operation. And yeah. We got in there. Yeah. That, uh, yeah. That's, I'm so proud of her. Like, I don't know if she's worth a billion yet, but man, she's, she's doing well. Um, and it's such a, I mean, like that's a $2 and 25 cent bottle. There's the secret. Like <laughs> that was a bottle that they couldn't even sell in the Chinese market. And so that the fact that she took that and built it into a billion dollar brand, like <laughs> good on you, Sarah, <laughs> that was great. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but Hydroflash is also a billion dollar business as well. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So, I mean, we were, we, we, we kind of had the shelf space and, um, we were there and, um, you know, it was kind of like when I was a pilot, like there, low browser storage backup recording will start. Your browser is limiting the storage available to re- make sure you are not in incognito and you exceed your storage limit. Close. Oh, that's you. Okay. What does that even mean? I don't know, but it, it looks like it's still recording and the time's still clicking, so I think we're okay. Okay. Oh, you're not moving. You're saying you're uploaded the I have an issue with Riverside FM typically. Okay. So, all right. So, all right. So now you get to a place of your, you get, you know, you have this market share. Where do you go from there? Do you step away from Hydro Flask? Are you still there? Um, well, so it was kind of like when I was, when I was flying, I had a list of kind of a mental and I had like these flashcards that I made but I had like this list of all the airplanes that I always wanted to fly. And once I flew them, it was kind of like, eh, okay, now I flew them. And yeah, it was a lot of fun, but I could probably go the rest of my life without doing that again. And Hydro Flask just kind of got to the point where um, like I, I just kind of got bored. I was ready to go out and travel. My, my brother had just, died. I just got married to my first wife and like, I had a lot of stuff going on that I I wanted to do outside of hydro flask. And it was kind of taking up all of my time and energy. And so we talked about getting a new CEO and they wanted to keep me on. And, you know, they were, they, they showed me the corporate playbook basically, like, here's what we're going to do with the company if, if, and when we buy you out. And, um, you know, that's always like the preferred route for investors is to knock the founders out and, and install yeah. their own CEOs that are more corporate. And I'm just not really a corporate guy. So it's like, nah, I'm going to tap out and go do my own thing. I'm going to go do the Travis thing. Got it. So they, they gave you a buyout and guess you took it and, and left at that point. Yeah, I was out in France and um I was at the I think I was at the Louvre or one of the one of the museums and I had always had this thing in my head that like as soon as I see a hydro flask out on the far side of the world, I will have known that I made it. 
And I was at the Louvre. There's a pink hydro flask. And I started talking to the lady. I was like, hey, where'd you get that? And she just loved it. She was holding it tight. She's like, this is my hydro flask. This is mine. You know? And it's like, no, I'm not saying you stole it. I'm just asking, like, where'd you get it? She's like, oh, I got it in, in Phoenix and I just love it. And that, you know, do, do, do. I said, okay, cool. Thank you. And I kind of started to walk away. And then I think my brother was like, hey, that's the owner. That's Travis. He owns the company. He, he founded it. He invented Hydroflask. The lady calls her husband over. Her husband comes over. He starts crying because he met me and he just loves Hydroflask. And my, like, he was just a super fan. And at that point, I was like, I think I've accomplished everything I've set out to accomplish plus more. Like I never expected that. And now that that's happened, I, I feel complete. I feel good. Yeah. So I returned I, I home. The, yeah. I was kind of like at my own. The pinnacle of where yeah. your brand could actually go. It's international at this point. Yeah. So you wouldn't feel bad letting it go to the adults to go play and build it. Exactly it. right. It's like, okay, you know, like not only do I feel good that it's in good hands, you know, the, the investor told me, I mean, and, and I, I mean, I told him, I said, look, I don't want you to fire anybody arbitrarily. You know, there was one or two that kind of needed to go and it was kind of a good excuse to let them go. But for the most part, don't let anybody go. Don't leave Bend, Oregon. You know, don't fuck with anything. Just let it go the way it is. And he promised, you know, and 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 he held his word. He maintained that, you know, the the integrity of it. He he kept the culture, he kept the brand, and he uh, you know, they they brought in a, a real experienced CEO that was a lot more corporate than I ever will be. And they they kept going. They poured a lot of money into it and and went and sold it up to Helena Troy and got that market share and man, it's still doing great. So, uh, what, uh, what percentage of um, ownership did you have when you sold it? Cause I know you took a lot of investment. So at what point, how much did you have in it at that point? I was at 49%. Yeah. We okay, had bought out my partner. I don't know, maybe a year and a half or so before we bought her out and, uh, Buying her out took the invest. The investor got to fifty one percent. So when I was at forty nine, it was like, okay, the corporate, the corporate raiders are here now. Yeah, they own it and kind of gone after that. Yeah. Um. And now, now to see what it is, are you happy with where it's at now? I am. I am for the most part. You know, like there's some political stuff that I don't agree with. I I think that. You know, but there again, I think anytime you kind of go corporate, you have to kind of play by different rules and you have to yeah. play by some kind of like, it's just different. Um, you know, and I, I, there was a lot of things that they missed over the years. I, I still see a lot that they could be doing different and better. And there's, but at the same time, I'm very proud. It's like my child is doing really well. The fact that you're sitting out yeah. there in New York and in New Jersey and that the lady out in um, Paris knows the brand, like I, I'm not really on social media, but I think it was like Instagram has like at least five or six countries that have their own um, hydro flask page. You know, it's like, yeah, that's dope. That's really cool. Yeah. <laughs> And the designs are cool. Like I said, we have a bunch of them in the house. That It's between that and Swell. My wife likes to Swell because yeah. of the designs. Not yeah. really so much the functionality. Although I think they function very much the same. Mm -hmm. But she likes the pretty little florals and all those things that are on there. They're actually um, made so at the same factory. There's a there's another secret for you. There's only about... Oh, wow. Yeah, there's only about three or four like really good factories that make the bottles. And uh, Sarah is... Well, I shouldn't say that, but... Yeah, there's there's only a couple of really good factories, and that's where and, and most of the brands are all at the same factory. Got it. Now, so thank you so much for sharing that part of your story. Um, you know, for continuity of time, I want to kind of get to the questions I always ask. You know, there's somebody listening to this. They're at you know at a cubicle. They hate them their job that they're at. They they you know they want to make a change. They want to start that business. They want to do that thing, but they're afraid. What advice would you give that person? Well, I, you know, I think it's tough not knowing that person, you know, like, do they have kids? Are they married? Do they have a mortgage? Do they like living where they live? Um, you know, like, 
it's very difficult to be an entrepreneur. It's very, very difficult. I mean, there was a lot of nights where we didn't have food. We, you know, we didn't have enough money for heat. Our garbage cans got repossessed. I mean, it was tough. And I think that the older I am, you know, this is, you know, a fair few years later, I don't know that I would take those risks again, you know? And, um, but if you, if you have a calling, if you have something that you know is just a burning desire you have to do, the reason you're on this planet is to deliver something for people and, and you can help humanity and do good. I really do believe act boldly and unseen forces will come to your aid. I really, truly believe that. You take that first step in the right direction, somewhere, somehow, somebody's going to show up and, and give you a hand and help you along. And if you're doing the right thing, it'll happen. Some people don't do the right thing and they, they accelerate even quicker. They're Machiavellian, it's called. They raise real quick, but then they fall even harder and even faster. So, yeah. Oh, that's a that's a solid piece of advice. So you're saying only if you feel called and it's like a burning desire, go pursue that. Because if it's not, it's a tough road. If if yeah, if it's something that you feel like, you, like there's a saying like you don't want to die with the music, your music inside of you. And if yeah. you feel like you've got to get this out, you have to share it with the masses. You have to share it with humanity. Well, then you need to do that. And even if you do fail, you know, who, who's, whose definition of failure is that? You know, that's the other thing. It's like, just because the business may not work doesn't mean it's a failure. It means that at least you tried, you learned, you can go do something else next time, knowing what you know from what you just did. Awesome. That's very, very good advice. Now, on your path, do you think a lot of what happened, you know, like somebody walked in the door and cut you a million dollar check, do you think a lot of it was based off your hustle or a lot of it was based off just luck? Uh, <laughs> you know, like I do think that was luck, but at the same time, how did we get lucky? Well, we made a great product and we hustled mm -hmm. and we spent a lot of nights and weekends and blood, sweat and tears and then rinse, repeat all over again. So, I mean, we worked really hard to get that lucky, you know, like had we not had a good product and had we not had the shelf space that we had and had we not been out there in the world, dude would have never seen it and he never would have bring in his homeboy who had the money you know and so it's like preparation met opportunity and just like that another illustrious episode is in the can now tell me travis's story wasn't a amazing winding turning story of entrepreneurship and you know travis started a company that is now a billion dollar company and it's super exciting um i want to say thank you travis for being a guest on the show i would love to know what you guys thought of today's episode go to h4hustle.com go over to the episode section leave me a comment underneath this episode i would love to know what you guys thought of this episode i'm gonna wrap it up like i always wrap it up with from the quote from the late great nipsey hustle the quote goes this game will test you never fold stay 10 toes down because it's not on you it's in you and what's in you they can never take away that's it guys peace boom Hey Alexa, what's the definition of hustle? To be aggressive, especially in business or other financial dealings. You're listening to the H for Hustle podcast, designed to inspire future entrepreneurs to take the leap from working for someone else to pursue their passions and side hustles and turning them into full-fledged businesses. My name is Jerome Fenton. I'm a serial entrepreneur. Every week, I'll be speaking with an entrepreneur that has taken that leap. We'll be talking about the lessons they've learned and how they've turned their passions and side hustles into full-fledged businesses. H for Hustle Podcast, welcome back. 
another illustrious episode up ahead. And on today's episode, we have Travis Rossbeck, the founder of the Tumalo Group. And man, Travis's story is incredible. So Travis was the founder of a a billion dollar company called Hydro Flask. Now Hydro Flask is those metal um, drinking bottles that you know you've seen everywhere. You go to Marshalls, Ross, TJ Maxx, they're all over the place. Um, you probably have one in your house right now. I know I have a few in my house. And we go through Travis's journey of how he started this company. And man, what is the wild, wild, very wild story. So first thing I want to say, please subscribe wherever you listen to this podcast at. Two, make sure you go over iTunes and write a review. Those are really important for us. So please go over there and write a review for us. And that's all I have. Buckle your seatbelts because this is going to be a wild episode of a, a very, very interesting story. Let's lock in right now. Boom.